in the end, that means that you are also reducing the capacities in getting help for developing the next part in the coming projects from the bias, which means that I think that there is also a responsibility for them to keep the capacities close to them. Because in the end, I, I mean, it's like the old saying, you don't miss the horse in the booth until the horse is not in the booth, right? Is the stable empty in Europe? Are they still the stables, enough? I mean, the stables starts to become empty, I would say. So yeah. the risk, if, if I make there, a comparison. There, there, there is this overhanging risk that there will be very small, small stables and, and much, much less stables in Europe. Hello and welcome to the Goldcasting podcast. Today we are here in Sweden and we have a guest. Welcome, Dr. Pajarsen, to join us here in the podcast. Thank you very much. That's amazing to have you here. Uh, yeah, me and Fabian, we, we know you since, since a long time, but uh, could you please explain a little bit about yourself and yeah. why we're standing here and, and uh, what are you trying to do and uh, why is there an odd machine in the background? Yeah, beautiful, aren't they? To introduce myself, my name is Per Jansson and I am the CEO and founder of Comtech. And um, I have been uh, within diecasting basically my whole life. I started 1992 in the foundry here and then I've been around in, in uh, basically all different positions within the foundry. And um, in, <coughs> in, sorry, in year 2000 I um, became the project leader for um, Foundry to start up a subsidiary in China and um, with all the things that that uh, meant to start a foundry in China. And um, since 2005, I was made um, responsible for this factory as a managing director. And um, we can say that since I was responsible in this foundry, I had the main focus was to transfer project from Sweden to China and um, laying off people. That was a big part of my job. And of course, doing that, one thought, what can we do to keep the jobs here in Sweden? Beat Chinese on price is, as everybody knows, very difficult. So you look around what that, and then I heard about one person here in Sweden based in the Jönköping University. He had invented an alloy that never solidified. And that is usually not the problem that you have in a foundry, that alloys don't solidify. It's rather the opposite. And um, that woke uh, my curiosity, so I had to go up and uh, discuss with the guy what he had invented. And that was actually the first time I came in contact with uh, real casting as we know it today. That made me look into that a little bit deeper. And um, I thought that if it holds what the guy said it should, then that's the way we should, how we should compete with the Chinese. That led to that we bought the first license of the Rio casting technology from Rio Metal and Dr. Magnus Vesen. Quite soon after we did that, we really understood that, well, perhaps there were room for improvements in uh, the process. It's interesting. How long did it take you from buying the license to have a viable product that works? 
pool. Let's say like this, that we bought the first license in 2007. Basically also then to add a little bit spice to the courses was that the current owners then decided that they should close this Swedish entity as a foundry. And that led to that a management buyout was made, meaning that we bought out the machinery, the people and some customers that followed us, so to say, and that we could then start up Comtech. Yeah, and then we were operating Comtech as a foundry, so to say, using the technology, producing parts. And um, the yeah. first project we made was to a telecom OEM, where we uh, basically took out 85% of all the machining to that product. It was a radio filter, and we did all the casting instead, directly through real casting. I thought then that, well, now, now we have proven real casting for all future, so to say. Basically, I would say that that was my first disappointment in, in real casting, but it had nothing to do with the technology of real casting. It had more to do with, how should I say, purchasing politics, meaning that the customer would not allow a single source option and a single technology source option. So that's why that didn't really turn into serial production. Okay, that's interesting. But, so, but where, where are you now? You have introduced a novelty on the market called Reocasting, right? Yeah. You're building machines that are in the, in the front. If I hear this right, you own a nice foundry, you sell it for a big pile of money, you buy it back when it's more or less bankrupt for a small portion of the money, and then you take a little bit of the extra in between and you, you plow it into a technical development. So the first question is, what is the biggest hurdle to introduce something new in the foundry market? Yeah, interesting question. What is the biggest hurdle? First, I would say that it's not about the technical innovation. That, that is one, one step and one hurdle. The next innovation you need to, to get your head around is, is the business model. How should you introduce the technical innovation into to the market, so to say? And that took quite some years to really understand. We struggled, I would say, uh, almost 10 years operating the technology as a foundry, trying to sell components, until we realized that, well, this, this isn't the right business model. We need, instead of using the technology, we need to sell the technology. And that's why we have these machines behind us, because we took the decision in, in 2019 to move away from being a foundry and turn into a technology provider meaning that we need to make sure that the bias of the cast component can put the technology on competition, so to say. So they need to have several sources. I would say that this is probably the biggest hurdle to overcome, and that was the one that took the longest time to understand. Mm. Interesting. So it's not about the design, it's not about the atoms and, and the stuff that we really don't want to talk about here. It is actually about the business model to, to understand how to reach the decision maker and create a demand. Exactly. Is that correct? That's fully correct. And how was it the yeah. difference from selling castings to selling machines like these slurry makers to the market? How is it different to approach the market with something new? Well... Of course, when you come to something new and you promise quite a lot, you, you promise that it can do this and can do that and all the benefits. You, you, the first thing you, you are met with is some kind of skepticism. Why, if this now is so good and it has been around so long time, why haven't it been used already? That's the first question you meet. And I would say that like when we started with this, the first five years we tried to convince the market that they had to 
use a different material. And I think still this is the biggest hurdle so far by trying to sell the, the machinery into a foundry because the foundry need to do small changes in order to accommodate the technology. And I still think that this is the, the, the biggest change and the biggest challenge that, that we have to address. So your biggest obstacle is basically the willingness to change something to achieve a new outlook. Exactly. And I think even we, we are not really that mature yet that we actually can sell this directly to the foundries because we need to have the product owners with us. They are the decision makers that decide that they they need the parts that this technology can can provide, so to say. And, and this is... This, uh, this, th then there is another angle to this, right? We have three regions. We have North Americans... They are what they are. We have Europeans. We are what we are. And then we have Asia, including the big country, China, and everything that's surrounding. There's a big turmoil on the market. But how would you regard the different... I mean, think some listeners to us have a bright idea and they feel like, yeah, I'm going to do like Per Jansson. I'll copy his model. You have told us about your business model. You have to change it. You have to adapt to, to reach your targets. But where would you start? If you did this travel again... Looking back 15 years, we would, what do you know today? Okay, you would have a different business model. That's understood. But would you start in Sweden, Europe, or would you start somewhere else? No, I wouldn't start in Europe. I, I probably would, would have chosen um, North America. Why? You know what the prejudice in Sweden say about America, right? They're like Fred Flintstones, all of them. They drive big diesel cars and, uh, or they live in... Uh, in California being vegans. I, I would probably start in North America because I feel that the, the risk of failing or succeeding, so to say, with something new, I think the risk of fail is not regarded as fatal in North America as it is here in Europe. I mean, uh -huh. in, in some, some sense, it's probably more okay to fail in North America compared to Europe because then, then it's more regarded like a, uh, lessons learned. This is not the way how to do. I should do it mm -hmm. differently. I don't think it's regarded in the same way here in Europe. If, if I don't do anything, I won't make a mistake. But, but the product, if you look at an American car, a European car, an Asian car, I mean, you see the car development every day, right? Yeah. Is the American cars following the leadership of electrification or, or are they like me too? So, or could, could you elaborate a little bit what you see in the North American market? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just yeah. We can just mention one brand, which is American, and that's Tesla. They they are actually in the forefront in developing in how die casting or high pressure die casting are are developing by introducing these new mega castings and pushing the industry to deliver equipment that can can allow that, and which makes a total new thinking in how to assemble a car. That then die yeah, casting who's, is who's, allowing. Who's listening to Tesla then? Who's copying Tesla? Is is Audit copying Tesla? Is uh, BYD copying Tesla? How how do you see the spread of this? Because I, I imagine that you're following what what Elon Musk is doing pretty closely. Well, one can say if you go west from here to US and see what they are doing, and if they are the leaders, I think you you can continue west and see that that is spreading into to the Chinese market. And is it then from Asia coming to Europe or is there an own seat of innovation in Europe? How do you see it? Which is the hardest part to develop something new or how to bring it to the market? 
No, I, I think that the Europeans will follow the others. They won't lead in this case. Then I have to ask, your operation is how big? 25? 25 people, yeah. If you, if you look like uh, just a close example, Bühler. Have you seen the commercial from Bühler? Have you seen the commercial from Rio Tinto, Alcan, all the big companies? How did you market your, your innovation to reach the market to get a brand awareness out there? Basically, we, 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 we took the route to, um, to market the, the benefits from Rio casting through direct contacts through LinkedIn and things like that to, to decision makers, I would say. And, and, and through that, we actually won awareness of our technology, I would say. So that's the way. If, if, if some smart listener now have a, a great product... And they feel, hmm, I don't have the budget. I cannot be on the GIF at Eurogas Mexico, the Eurogas uh, blah, blah, blah. I cannot be dining and whining with all the 1500 decision makers because I don't know who to sell to. Who will be my first customer? Then your advice is more or less some kind of guerrilla marketing and digital channels, right? I would say so, yes. Then the question is whether we were lucky where perhaps the, 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 the media channels haven't been develop that much that they might do in the future and so on and and change into some kind of industrial facebook or whatever but so far i think that uh, that linkedin is still a very strong tool to reach the persons within the industry do you think this is a generation thing let me give an example in the old days when i started in industry in the 90s it was all about whining and dining that generation is retired since what five ten years the younger guys do they have time to do the whining and dining or or, or do you think they are more no they are, they, they are already, more driven are, by the, social media the younger generation are already used to search all information through their mobile phone that is mm-hmm. how they find information today and that is how they communicate And I think you need to adapt to that very quickly because even though we think we are still young, we are not really that young anymore. So, uh, so I think we need, we need to understand that perhaps we need to adapt to the, to the new way. I think it's also easier, think this... I'm speaking as, as the young guy around, <laughs> that it's way easier to reach a thousand, ten thousand people on an online marketplace instead of talking to ten thousand people all individually. Yeah, yeah. That's that. That's definitely you. You, you can need, you can reach the masses in a much quicker way doing that. But how is the quality of of, of that mass communication? I mean, yeah. I mean, the important is that you get your message out, and and then if you if you get the message out to let's say ten thousand people, and and it's enough if you just five are are interesting and coming back asking, then then you have reached your 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 goal, so to say, and and that's the best marketing, I would say, that getting your product out, and and that I mean, the foundry industry is in in one sense, it's not big, it's very very small. Everybody knows what everybody is doing in different areas, so to say. And there's a lot of talk. And there's a lot of talk. So if you get into that community by somebody doing something, everybody knows what he's doing. You don't need to say that. But I think, it, again, you do it quite well on LinkedIn, is to transform the manage, message that is an outgoing. Like, it's, it's more like that the re- reader receives the advantages, not the technology that it can turn smoothly no it's industrial ready production yeah but, yeah but one one thing that we also try to do and, and that is that the found, high pressure die casting foundry society if i say like that that is usually a subcontracting 
activity, right? They have a customer or they have a few customers which are the majority of their capacity. The marketing departments and trying to find new customers within foundries is not the same level as it is for companies that are selling a product, for instance. And we are basically not turning our marketing into foundries, but we are also turning our marketing into product owners, which means that we are actually creating business for the foundries. And I think that foundries realizes and acknowledge this more and more and more, because that means that a slurry maker, that means business opportunities for a foundry. In the end, it's all about business, right? Definitely. So you build up uh, not just a machine, you build up a solution for a foundry to start making money. Exactly. exactly. But can you sell to all the foundries then? I mean, if you look at the foundries now, right or wrong now, Per, I, I make this a statement. Foundries in Europe, for example, many of them are, are in, in quite a, a critical situation. They have had full order books, yet the margins are quite low. And now we see the EVs, we have a couple of regulatory demands. We, we cannot sell any ICEs, 2030, all these things. What do you think will A, happen with the European foundry industry? And if you would sell something in Europe, who, who should you actually select to become your target customer? Well, in, in, in the end also, if I say like this here in Europe, I think also that the, the buying end of, of the foundry, I mean, it, it's very easy to, to select a part and say, and, and say that we can buy that much cheaper in, in East Asia somewhere and so on. But on the other hand, in the end, that means that you are also reducing the capacities in getting help for developing the next part in the coming projects from the buyers, which means that I think that there is also a responsibility for them to keep the capacities close to them. Because in the end, I, I mean, it's like the old saying, you don't miss the horse in the booth until the horse is not in the booth, right? Is the stable empty in Europe? Are they still the stable, enough? I mean, the stable starts to become empty, I would say. So yeah. the risk, if, if I make there, a comparison. There, there is this overhanging risk that there will be very small, small stables and, and much, much less stables in Europe. What do you think if you is look the at, uh, sustainability movement towards import taxes like CBAM? going to trigger an even worse situation for European foundry? Or do you think it will help them? if they survive until 2026. Yeah, I, I think it's a great, great opportunity for them if they uh, approach this in the right way to survive and to, to prosper from that. Because now perhaps we are a little bit uh, lucky because we are in the northern part of Europe, meaning Sweden, where we have clean energy and so on. But I think if we adapt to that, there, there's a fantastic advantage to be within the EU compared to the others, because they, the others really, really need to go an extra mile to compete. That's my feeling about that. Yeah, but, but it seems like, like the, the biggest interest so far for, for this has actually been shown by the, by the Asians so far, regarding this mm. with the CBAM and so on. So it seems that they are also quicker to the ball compared to Europeans. They don't really understand perhaps to... what that means. But then I have to ask, finally, before you rush off to, to some, uh, something else, if I want to be profitable, making a good profit in the foundry industry, what would you do? If, you're, if you were not running Comtech and wanted to make a pile of money in the foundry industry, being a little bit greedy, what should you do? What I should do, I should focus on, on, um, on parts where you, you can 
provide special properties, not the mainstream. So where no you, shock where towers. You, where, where you can, can stick out, so to say, and focus on parts which have high properties, perhaps low CO2 footprints and things which, which are regarded valuable to the market. Because I think that if you can provide a sustainable casting to the market, you have a value where you are able to have a, a higher margin for. I think I will focus on that. Hmm. Interesting. So you would say... It's looking for a niche to start in with high quality, high properties and a very sustainable carbon footprint. I would say, yes. So uh, one of the episodes we released is high mix, low volume. And what's your take on it? Do you said going into niche that would be going in that direction? Would that be something you'd also start with your hypothetical foundry to make the money? Yeah, I think so. But I would, know, I would probably focus a little bit more on what, what the casting process adds value, so to say, because in any cases, if you look at the foundry industry today, you won't survive just doing casting. You need to do post-processing. You need to do machining. You need to do heat treatment. Perhaps you need to do surface treatment. In certain cases, also assembly. So the question is, do you earn money on just casting? No, you don't make the money on the casting itself. Exactly. The casting is just 50% the alloy you buy and the rest is the energy cost and yeah. some overhead. So the casting is just the base to start earning money on something else. I would look into to where will the casting and the properties that you can provide be a difference. And one thing that, that I think we, as a founder industry, what we need to do is we need to do like Elon Musk were doing. He had an idea in how to build a car where he basically started to compete with sheet metal forming from die casting. What else commodities are there that is not made from high pressure die casting today that can go into die casting and start competing and perhaps give a commercial value like the mega casting means for the car industry. But then you must look besides the automotive industry, I guess, or? Yeah, exactly. You, you need to start competing with other commodities mm -hmm. and other, other, other applications that are not die-casted today. What it would be your preferred industry to start looking? Ooh, if, I, if, I, if, if I knew that, then, then I mean, I would already have the answer, right? But, <laughs> but I guess we, we need more people to start to think on this. Where can die-casting give a, a benefit from, from a cost perspective as a whole? I don't know. Can you make a refrigerator from casting? Can you make an electrical cabinet from die casting? Can you make uh, whatever complete bicycles in one go in die casting? But what you're saying then is if you have a foundry, uh, you find these niches, you probably need to have a team that actually can answer to that development because then all of a sudden you need to, to I mean, if you're a component producer, you get the drawing and, and you're allowed to change what? 0.1% of, of uh, the dimensions on the drawing. Now you're saying that mm, you have to bring a value with the caster, uh, casting itself, but probably you also have to bring value with your organization being the, the dialogue partner to an engineering department. So that leads to... Speak about investment, here comes the question. Would you start to invest in people that actually could discuss these parts first? Or would you start with something else? I would probably invest in relations in, in, other, in other areas in order to find out how people are thinking 
I mean, for instance, there are other uh, other areas where this perhaps should be developed. I mean, since it's a, it's a general question for the whole industry, basically, I mean, the electrification that we are facing, that will drive that there will be a lot of free capacity in the diecasting industry. What are we going to do with that free capacity? That ought to interest other groups that works in this, like, for instance, casting associations and, and things like that. How, how are they organized? What pressure do they get from the industry in, in developing this? So that there is a change that need, are needed to the whole industry, I think. But you don't hear that from the casting associations. No. Have you, have you guys heard anything uh, about the future outlook and uh, this is how we suggest you should think and how to meet the future? I think they're still, uh, you know, having seminars about uh, spray heads and uh, shot sleeves and uh, the but, dinner but, is paid but, from an alloy as, producer. As, as you said previously, the foundries are, are, are working today. They have a lot and they don't really have the, the energy nor the time to lift their, their eyes that far ahead and, and think like that. Or do they have the wrong profile in their organization? Should they employ someone from a total different industry for, for making like market development or something? Yeah, I, I think market development is something that, that, that needs to come higher up on the agenda anyway in these companies. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So really what you're saying is you have to create the market for yourself not just wait for a new part is uploaded to the portal and then you download it and work on it. Exactly. You need to address that yourself. You can't really blame someone else and say that the market is shrinking and therefore we are shrinking. Then you have to do something to increase the market. Mm. It's interesting also if you're entering a development project, even before you sell the castings and as we already stated, don't make too much money of that. You have an engineering and development process you can already charge before you even start the casting process. Yeah, correct. If you have the right partner, you can do that. But that's mm. exactly the task of that business development team to find these customers. Exactly. To find both the customers and the applications. Maybe mm. bring them together then. Yeah. If they're Great talk, Per. Uh, we're happy to have you here in the pod. I bet we will have a, a bunch of new listeners when we start to announce this podcast, this nugget as we call them. And for people that are interested to, to shake hand and uh, maybe put questions, you will be at Eurogas, right? Correct. We have a booth at Eurogas and if everybody's interested so that's in, a great in, opportunity. in how to equip the, the, the foundry for the, for the future and get ready, they're welcome to Comtech's booth. Yeah, That's perfect. So thank Do you, you very much for participating. To tell our listeners that you want to let them know about Rio Casting, what you do. We are happy to have have meetings, teams, or even in person, even more if they come here, where they also can see the the process live, and then to take down all the all the assumptions people may have about semi semi solid casting and so on. Because with semi solid casting and Rio Casting, I'm pretty sure that every foundry man will have the same aha feeling I had the first time when we started and understood what is possible to do with this. And I would like every, every person to have that. So please get in touch with us via the internet or, or come here in person and we will we'll straighten all the potential question marks there are. Thank you very much. Great. That is a perfect last sentence. So thank you for listening. Reach out to Peer and Comtech for anything regarding new markets, real casting, and we hear us in the next Gold Nugget.
Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.